I think one of the most fascinating realities of the human body is that as you're sitting there right now, your blood is being cleansed. Your blood, your own blood is being cleansed. One of the main purposes of our liver is to cleanse our blood. Grab all the impurities, grab all the junk that you introduced to it yesterday by the things that you ate and drank. Remember that Twinkie? Remember that can of stuff you drank that had sodium bibenzoate gajunkometer in it? You remember that? All that stuff that you threw into your bloodstream yesterday, your liver is saying, I've got this. I've got this. I will cleanse your blood and I will give it back to you clean. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? I think that the cross of Jesus Christ is the liver of the body of Christ. It just keeps cleansing the blood that we keep corrupting. Constantly cleansing the blood that we keep correcting. Now, with our physical liver, we could solve this whole problem by never eating anything bad again, right? Yeah, I know. How about how long will that last? Hour? Wow, you're good. I've got Doritos in my office. (laughs) I shouldn't have told you that, huh? Everybody want an appointment? We could stop all this Jesus needing to cleanse the blood of the body of Christ if we could just never sin again. Does that seem like a reasonable plan? It's a great goal, but it doesn't seem realistic, does it? The cross of Jesus Christ is the liver of the body of Christ, constantly cleansing Well, as we continue in our Through the Bible series this morning, we've made it all the way to the third book, to the book of Leviticus. Genesis was about beginnings, about getting started. Exodus was about the great escape out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so now, as we get to the book of Leviticus, we have a couple of million Israelites wandering around in the wilderness... The food they're eating is food that God is causing to fall from the sky at night. They're trying to sort out what's next. Moses is meeting with God in this thing called the Tent of Meeting. They have this makeshift worship place called the Tabernacle, which is the precursor to the elaborate temple, but it was portable. I kind of think of it as the pop-up camper version of the temple, you know. They could move it around. It had similar components, spaces in it. They had the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the, the centerpiece of their worship. And uh, they were just at a place where they were going like, so what's next? Here we are. What do we do next? And that's what Leviticus is about. It's about how to be the people of God. 
27 chapters in Leviticus about how to be the chosen people of God. It's about the stuff that would distinguish them from all the other people on the earth. Leviticus. Father, we invite you to come in the power of your Holy Spirit and show us not just what what the food is here for our minds in terms of understanding and embracing the flow of your word from Genesis to Revelation, but what did you have in mind for us in our hearts, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit? What fruit do you want to bear in our lives? What, what gifting and anointing and power do you want to pour through our lives? Because we've spent some, some time considering your word. We invite you to come, Father, into this house. Do the things that, that only you can do. Father, again, I surrender They didn't come to hear me, they came to meet you. And so, I ask you to come and teach this word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Leviticus, let's begin with some context. The word Leviticus, as a word, means of the Levites. So it's about the Levites. The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel. Tribe meaning a group of people coming from one of the sons. And the Levites had in particular the call to be the part of the Israelites, the family within the Israelite uh, line uh, that took care of the, uh, of the meeting with God stuff, took care of the things of the tabernacle, both practically and priestly. They were the ones who carried the tabernacle around. They were the ones who dealt with the, with the items and the articles of worship. They were also, through the line of Aaron, the ones who were the priests, who actually served as the ones who stood between the people and God and did certain very particular things according to the command of God. And so the, the, the word Leviticus that is in our Bible comes from the Latin name for it, which means of the, of the Levites, but that wasn't the Hebrew name of it. The Hebrew name of that second book is not Leviticus, it's not of the Levites, the Hebrew name, which was, would have been the original name of that third book, comes from a Hebrew word which is translated, and he called. And he called. And if you think about the flow of the scripture, Genesis, which means beginnings, and the development of God's people, and then they're captured... They're in bondage. They, they, they multiply in bondage. And then so Exodus is, is the escape. Well, now they're in the wilderness. And so what does God do? He calls. He calls out to them. And it underscores the whole theme of what we've already seen in just the first three books of the Bible that God wants to have relationship with his people. He created, created humans in Genesis to have relationship. Sin came and interrupted that relationship. Because of a variety of expressions of sin, they had to be rescued from Egypt. But here they are, and in spite of their sinful condition, their unholy state, God calls. God called, and he called. I love that. It's so tender. It's so true. They're, 
They're going, what do we do now? We're out in the wilderness. You pick up the phone. <laughs> it's God's calling. Is that resonating with anybody in the house? And he called. It doesn't matter what's happened up to this point. So you thought maybe Leviticus was going to be, oh, yeah, we got to go through all that. What do you do about mildew in the house and all that stuff? And the whole thing of Leviticus is, and he called. I got plans for you. I still love you. And he called. I love that. Both of these names are fitting because as you read through the book of Leviticus, it's all about Levites and what they're supposed to do to reconnect the people with God. Remember, the Levites were the ones who handled that stuff. They handled what is clearly the most important theme of the book of Leviticus, and that's the thing called the atonement. That's how to get right with God when you've fallen away. That's how to be forgiven of your sins when you've sinned. And so they handled this thing called the atonement. And as you see back in the Old Testament, it was a very detailed kind of a thing. There were details of the atonement. Why? Because God is a holy God. And His holiness won't be compromised. And so He made a way for us to be restored to Him in His holiness. It's called the atonement. And in the Old Testament, it has to do with making certain sacrifices on certain days. And it also has to do with making certain offerings on certain days. And it was very detailed about how this atonement would happen so that the people of Israel could continue to have relationship with the God who wanted to have relationship with them. So that's what the Levites did. They, whether they were carrying tent poles or whether they were a priest in the Holy of Holies, they were doing their part to restore the people of Israel to God through the atonement. And so what happens in Leviticus is there's a switch from this historical narrative of God making people and their, their, their uh, captivity in Egypt, and there's a switch over to their distinctive way of life. This is how I'm going to relate to you. You're my chosen people. And um, I think there are four major themes in the book of Leviticus. And the first one is the offerings. There are five separate offerings that need to be made. There's guilt offering and a sin offering and a fellowship offering. And you look in the opening pages of Leviticus, you'll see that God had five separate offerings that were part of his atonement relationship with them. Here's how you're going to have a relationship with me. He's saying, here's how you're going to respond to my offer of relationship. You're going to bring these offerings. You're going to bring offerings. This was Old Testament approach to God, being restored to God. And uh, it just shows that the heart of God, part of our relationship, is to bring an offering. Bring an offering. That's part of our walk with the Lord, folks. I'm so grateful for those of you in this church who get that. You... You make it so easy for me and that I don't have to be one of those pastors who's always talking about money. We need this to do that. We do it when we have to, but it hasn't happened very often, has it? I'm so grateful for those of you who have, who have lived faithfully to God in the tithes and the offerings. 
You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years about the offering who come to me privately and they'll say this or that. You know, what I've discovered is that people who have an appreciation for what God has done for them are naturally generous because it's a response. It's a response to the great things that God has done. The offering is a natural thing. It's not a legalistic thing. Write the stupid vineyard check. But it's a response of gratitude for all that God has done and all that you see him doing here because it really starts here. If you think about people being in Brazil right now, it started here on this property, in this parking lot. It started here, didn't it? It started here, but it didn't end here. And so I'm so grateful for those of you. And you know, if you're a person who struggles with the offering going, I, I want to just you a- ask you to ask yourself this question. Is your reluctance to participate in the offering, is it really a financial issue? Or is it an issue of your heart? Is it an issue of your heart? Only you could answer that question. But I've just discovered over the years of the one thing that we've always managed to get right in our walk with Jesus is being people who tithed. And that's because our hearts were always toward God going, of course. Of course. But in the book of Leviticus, it was, there was no option not to be involved in the offering because your atonement was built in part on the offerings. The second theme is the priesthood. You have these priests, these individuals who were chosen by God, equipped by God to be the ones who stood between the people and God. That's what a priest does. That's not what I do. I'm not a priest. You know this. I'm your brother. I'm a specialized brother. I have the specialty of bringing the teaching to you, of offering leadership to the church, but that doesn't make me a priest. I don't have any ability or interest in standing between you and God. I just want to set the table and say, eat, for crying out loud, eat. That's my job. But in the Old Testament, they actually had, not every rank and file, the likes of us, were not expected to encounter God, but we lived vicariously, would have lived vicariously through these priests who had encounter with God. That all changed with the New Testament. You know, in the development of these priests, it was a tricky thing to be a priest, Aaron's own two sons, they lasted exactly two chapters in the book of Leviticus. And they were swallowed up by fire because they were just willy-nillying what was going on in the temple. Say, oh, let's try this. God was very detailed about the conditions of the atonement. The third uh, major theme in the book of Leviticus are the Levitical laws. The various kinds of laws, some of which had to do with what you're going to do in the tabernacle, some of which were a lot more practical, like what do you do when you get some black mold and growing in your house? It's all critically important stuff. And then finally, you really can't fly over the book of Leviticus without seeing the principle of obedience. God says in the Old Testament, I'm going to bless obedience, I'm going to curse disobedience. He says, choose life or death, and it's all based on obedience. The principle still holds true for us in the New Testament, but in a somewhat different way. God does bless obedience, doesn't he? 
and God does curse disobedience on the cross of Christ. Jesus took the punishment for our sins, but he took it. So this is kind of the flyover of Leviticus as we're working our way through these Bible books, but I told you each week I'd want to focus on something, and I want you to focus on Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus chapter 14, which has the appearance of uh, being medicinal, where it says cleansing from infectious skin diseases at the top, maybe, of your reference. But there's something a lot more going on here. Leviticus chapter 14, we're going to be looking at something here that I find so fascinating, and it's something called a typology. And typology is is a symbolic example in the Old Testament of an essential reality of the New Testament. Have you ever been reading in the Old Testament and you're going... Hey, wait a second. And you think about, that sounds like Jesus. Anybody ever do that? I know. And see, we have the luxury of reading from the perspective of the New Testament, a luxury in this regard of going, hey, wait a minute. That's called a type. And so I think one of the more famous examples of a type of Christ in the Old Testament are the pictures I put up here on the left is Abraham on Mount Moriah about to sacrifice his son Isaac, it says right in the scriptures, his one and only son Isaac. And so as I hope, maybe you don't all know the story, but God stops him before he does it, by the way. Okay, some of you are brand new to it and you're going, does he kill him? He stops him, but Abraham demonstrates his profound, unquestioning obedience to God that he was willing to do that. And the fact that that Isaac's, promised son, the son of the promise, his one and only son in this regard, the one and only son he was supposed to have in this regard, uh, he was willing to sacrifice him, is a type of, of course, God being willing to sacrifice his own son, Jesus Christ. And God didn't stop himself there. God didn't stop himself. He sacrificed Christ. He sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, so that his blood would make an atonement for our sins. But this is what a typology is. Sometimes they're called shadows. So like there's a shadow in the Old Testament of something that comes into the light in the New Testament. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and look in verses 16 and 17, you'll see that's exactly what Paul says about the Old Testament stuff. He says, he says, this Old Testament stuff, it's a, you were a shadow of things that were to come. The reality is found, however, in Christ. You see, guys, there's reality in Christ. There's supernatural reality to be experienced and encountered in Christ. There's kingdom reality to be experienced in Christ. You can have a warmed-up version of Old Testament laws and call it Christianity, You can write Jesus over the top of the Ten Commandments and call it Christianity, but it's not. It's not until we have reality in the profound power and move of the Holy Spirit. This is the true promise of God. So what I'm going to show you here in in, uh, Leviticus chapter 14 is actually a, uh, a type of something. I want to see if you can figure it out. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations 
These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. You're like, what? So we're starting with a diseased person. Now this person has been excluded from the community. They've been put outside the camp because that's what God told them to do. Now this was long before anybody knew anything about microbiology or contagious disease control. But God said, when somebody gets sick, put them out. That seems so mean. Isn't that when they need us to hug them? Not so much. Well, when can they come back in? Well, that's what he's about to say. So this person has had some leprosy or some kind of contagious disease. And in verse 3, it says, The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious disease, the priest shall order. This seems like a strange list of things to do. But listen to this. The priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. This sounds like Harry Potter or something, doesn't it? On first glance, it's like, what? What is all that? Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He's then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird in the open fields. So that's what you're supposed to do. You got it? You don't have to worry about it because you're not a priest. You don't get to do it. Let's back up on it. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their cleansing. Anybody know what sin is? It's a disease. It's a disease that we caught from our parents. And it's got to be dealt with. We've got to be cleansed. We are unclean unless something happens to it. What are we to do? Well, we brought to the priest... Am I your priest? No. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is our high priest. We come to Jesus. So the priest, he goes outside the camp. Where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem? Outside Jerusalem. Jesus Christ was outside the camp on a hill on a garbage dump. Golgotha, the skull, Calvary, outside of the city. So he goes outside, well, what happens? And examine them. If they've been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds. We need, we need two because two things have to happen. And in the physical realm, you can't kill a bird and do the other thing that needs to happen. So we want to bring two. And they need to be alive. And they need to be clean. Now, this would have been a reference to birds that were considered clean and some that were considered unclean. But the symbol is still the same. Bring two clean birds. What am I going to do with the birds? And some cedar wood. Does that sound like, what would you need wood for? What would you need wood for, church? What would you need wood for? How else do you build a cross? And some scarlet yarn? Scarlet yarn? Talk to me about what they cast lots for when Jesus Christ hung on a cross. What? 
his purple robes. This was written 1,300 years before Jesus was on the earth. And some hyssop. We've been over this ground before that hyssop, I don't know, I think of it like a paintbrush. It dries out like a sagebrush kind of thing. And it's got, it's something that you can grab like almost like a handle and dip it in something and you can then spatter with it. Spatter with it. And he said, I want you to bring all this stuff and do what? He said, then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed. What? Why would a bird be killed? What'd the bird do? What'd the bird do? The bird did nothing. That's the point. The bird was an innocent. The bird gave his life for this. And to have that bird killed over a fresh water, let the blood of that bird just drip into the water. Just let the blood of that, just squeeze that thing until there's no more blood left, and the water that's in the pot is now bloody water. And he's then to take the live bird, I got another bird, and do what? Dip it in the water, plunge it, hold it underwater. Together with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water, and then seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed. How do you do that? You take that hyssop and you go. You'd be a mess, wouldn't you? You'd be a mess. You'd have that bloody water. But everybody in here would know that you've been cleansed that you're welcome back into the community, that you're back in the house of God and the family of God because you've been cleansed by the sacrificial blood that was all done for you. The foundations of the cross of Christ were set up so long, so long ago. Oh yeah, there's a couple more things. And then pronounce them clean. You're clean by the blood of the Lamb. Justin, you're clean by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says you're spotless and without blemish. Clean by the blood of the Lamb. Oh yeah, there's one more thing to do. You take that other bird, that live bird, and then you take it out into the field and you go. The resurrection of Jesus. Go. Anybody just get a little chill? Anybody? This is the foundation for the cross of Christ. What he's done for us. It's what Leviticus is about. This is a fascinating thing, this Bible. And at the end of the day, the message of Leviticus is twofold. One, No matter what, God wants to have relationship with his people. No matter what. No matter what your list of transgressions is, God wants to have relations. He's made a way. He has details of the atonement. Details of the atonement. The Bible says, all of which have been fully met in Jesus Christ. 
You don't have to worry about the details of the atonement. The single requirement of us is to respond to God's offer of grace by trusting Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, and what he did on the cross for us. And that's the other message of of, uh, Leviticus, and that is that the cross is always there. The cross is always there, fulfilling its purpose. It's the liver. You know, the liver is hidden. When it's healthy, you can't even feel it. It's under our rib cage here. It's hidden. It's pretty big, too. Covers a pretty big spot, but it's hidden, and it just does its work. It does its work. It does its work. And if it doesn't do its work, you die. This is the cross of Christ. Constantly doing its work. Purifying the blood. Purifying the blood of Christ. The blood of the body of Christ. So what's in your your life today? What's going on? And what does the cross have to do with it? Some of the more astute among us today may have noticed a subtle change in the furniture up here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I had no plans to put the cross there where I usually speak until this morning when I was praying before the service. saying, Lord, so what, what do you want to do? And I was out on the thing we call the wall. And the Lord spoke two words to me. He said, first of all, he said, let the cross speak for itself. Let the cross speak for itself. So I just gave the cross my spot. Would you just focus on the cross? Would you meditate on the cross for a moment? Let the cross of Jesus Christ, finished work of Christ, speak to you. And the other word that I got from the Lord out on the path this morning was that that there will be some here today who will want to draw near to the cross. That as you consider the claims of the cross on your life, whatever's going on, don't know. Between you and God. But that there will be some who will actually physically want to draw near to the cross in response to him. I got another word as we were standing here singing one of those songs. And that's that God, this is for somebody in particular, God has been planning you a rescue for a very long time. Today is your day. So Father, we bow and thank you for the teaching of Leviticus. Forgive us for thinking it was just sort of uh, Old Testament stuff that maybe wasn't as relevant for today. We see it as the very forecast of the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, I I don't know who would be here who would be able 
to want to respond to drawing near to the cross or even what you're up to in stirring that in people. But I, in faith, call it out. In faith, I speak it out that those whose feet are meant to move will move by the power of God and that you will draw their hearts close to the heart of the cross today. So we invite you to come, Lord. This is in the power of our time together and complete the work that you intended in the name of Jesus. Amen.